from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Hello, friends, and welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and it's a pleasure to be sitting in for Tony and with you today. On the program today, the Biden administration has announced a pause of the Disinformation Governance Board. Does that mean it will be coming back later? We'll talk about that today. Also, a judge stopped enforcement of a Biden administration rule that would require employers to pay for transgender surgeries and counseling, even against their religious convictions. We'll get an update on that case. Also, accusations of white supremacy are everywhere. If you want to make it harder to cheat in an election, it's white supremacy. If you want to make it harder to break into the country, it's white supremacy. Even homeschooling, some on the left say, is motivated by white supremacy. Is white supremacy really everywhere? Virgil Walker, our friend from the great podcast Just Thinking, will be here with us to talk about how to think Christianly about the entire topic of white supremacy and what we can do to make the world better. But first, our headlines. The fallout continues from a hearing yesterday in the House Judiciary Committee on Abortion. Marjorie Jackson was at the Capitol today covering the ongoing reaction. I'm here outside the U.S. Capitol, where yesterday the House Judiciary Committee scheduled a hearing regarding access to abortion. Now, this is coming in the wake of the leaked Supreme Court draft decision that came out a few weeks ago for the Dobbs case that is potentially poised to be overturning Roe versus Wade. As you can imagine, there were fireworks in the hearing as Democrats and their witnesses expressed their panic over potentially losing access to abortion. If it is not lawful and morally acceptable to take the life of a 10-year-old child, I assume you agree with that, right? That would be wrong, correct? I believe that. Okay, that is and wrong. a 2-year-old child, same thing, that would be murder. We would all agree that's wrong. Then what is the principal distinction between the human being that is 2 years old or 9 months old or 1 week old or an hour old than one that is 8 inches further up the birth canal in the utero? What, what's the difference? Why is it okay in the latter case and not the former cases? I trust people to determine what to do with their own bodies. Wow. The unborn baby has a heartbeat, a separate DNA, its own blood type, fingerprints, arms, legs, hands, and toes. And ultrasound technology continues to advance and provides us with a window into the world of the unborn. But this hearing is not about the unborn child. This hearing appears to have been called to exert improper influence over the Supreme Court on an unfinished, leaked opinion draft. The title of this the hearing, hearing showed the increasingly heightened division between the two sides of the argument, the pro-life and the pro-abortion side. Though the Democrats and their witnesses were continually arguing for access to abortion through all nine months, a recent Trafalgar poll shows that less than 12 percent of Americans believe that abortion should be legal at any point in the pregnancy. And in fact, over 57 percent of Americans believe that abortion should be illegal at least after a fetal heartbeat is detected. Despite their vehement claims otherwise, could it be that pro-abortion politicians are out of touch with what the American constituency actually believes and what modern science has been showing about the viability and the humanity of life in the womb? The country awaits the final decision of the court coming in the next few weeks. Thank you, Marjorie. Joining me now to discuss this perspective 
on, on his perspective on what happened is someone who was part of the hearing and had some good questions of his own, Congressman Dan Bishop. In addition to being on the Judiciary Committee, he also serves on the Committee on Homeland Security and represents North Carolina's 9th District. Con Congressman Bishop, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Joseph. Good to be with you today. You were there yesterday. What did you learn during that hearing? Well, it was an interesting exchange of views. I think the entire hearing, the premise of the hearing, it was inappropriate to have a hearing by the, Demo the Democrats calling that hearing while the Dobbs case is pending for decision. Of course, we've had the leak of the draft opinion. So I, certainly, I think seeing that was uh, you learn something about what Democrats will do to continue to override and trample upon institutional norms. But the witnesses' testimony itself and their answers to questions like Mike Johnson's question you played, uh, those were informative, too. We, we are dealing with a, an extraordinarily radical uh, mindset that uh, wants to see babies killed until the moment of birth. And it is an extraordinary thing to see, a spectacle, but it is also instructive. I think that's true. And I think the cameras in in the room during those conversations are actually very helpful because this isn't a Twitter conversation where it's regulated. They're required to answer questions and, and you can see the weakness of the position in some of these cases. Now, you may have answered this already kind of. But do you agree with Representative Fishbach and her assessment that the purpose of the hearing was not really to learn anything or advance public policy, but to try to influence the outcome of an unyet decided Supreme Court case? I do, Joseph. I think that was what the plan was. You know, we uh, actually aired this issue. Democrats had another hearing some months ago, sort of because the Dobbs case was uh, on the court's calendar. And the, the issue was aired then. Frankly, that was inappropriate as well, because that was the occasion for putting it on that it was on the court's calendar. But now to do it again and have the, some of the same ideas trotted out, it, that, I do think it, it's improper. And we have this ser long series, Joseph, of events where the Democratic Party has been willing to trample institutional norms time and time again. They want to pack the court. They want to make D.C. a state. They want to take over all election regulation in Washington. It goes on and on. And that is something that is very dangerous to, uh, to our republic over time. And that, that is true. But I do want to get to uh, an exchange you were part of yesterday during this hearing. You asked a uh, an entertaining and interesting question of Amy Arambide, who is there from a pro-abortion group in Texas. Let's play clip three. What do you say a woman is? I believe that everyone can identify for themselves. Okay. Um, do, do you believe then that men can become pregnant and have abortions? Yes. Congressman Bishop, why did you ask that question? I anticipated that the response would be strange. And I think it's revealing. It, it sort of put, always makes me think of Romans 1, I think it's verse 22, They uh, pretending to be wise, they became fools. And uh, you see all the, the party that supposedly embraces science, uh, in fact, doesn't seem interested in science at all. They, they're, they're often some very weird kind of thought process. But, you know, I just, and in fact, it's very interesting, Joseph, that little exchange has blown up on the Internet, uh, over 2 million views just in on the House Judiciary Committee's tweet of it. 
And I actually find it very enlightening to see the two sides' uh, responses to, to, to that. And actually, a little earlier exchange I have with an, an abortionist who was there, a medical doctor, over what a woman is and her recalcitrance about answering the question. But it, it's sort of it's revealing about these two mindsets in the country. And the, the, I think what I celebrate is uh, it's, we all have cause for hope that we're getting ready to embrace a rational uh, res- uh, point of view and philosophy if the court will relent on this Roe versus Wade that's been in existence and, and inappropriately so for 49 years. Uh, we're going to be able to return this to uh, appropriate debate and decision at the state level, and we have an opportunity to reaffirm our support for life. And and my my goodness, all you have to do is read the the Declaration of Independence, right? The inalienable rights that come from God because we're creatures of God, created created by God. Life is the first one: life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's why government exists. So we get an opportunity to reaffirm that. Uh, hopefully. If the Supreme Court will have the solid, the, 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 will will follow through on what they've uh, preliminarily planned to do. We certainly hope and pray so. But you're right. A couple of the headlines, your question there that has gone viral for good reason, because this idea that anyone can become a woman, that men can get pregnant and have abortions, it is a radical position that most Americans don't share. And then the exchange with Congressman Johnson there about the fact that what's the difference between a born child and a child eight inches up the birth canal? And they have no answer to that question. And these conversations really are exposing, I think, the extreme positions that the left has taken on these really fundamental questions. Last question for you, Congressman Bishop, on this issue, though. There are concerns the Department of Homeland Security memo has warned about the possibility of violence once the Supreme Court releases its final ruling in this Dobbs case. Do you see that as a real threat? I I would rather not say that I think that's a great as a big threat, Joseph. I think the right thing to do here is is we solemnly proceed with our responsibilities and the Supreme Court needs to meet up with that. We need to count on the American people to do the right thing. And and the heartening thing for me about that thing that went viral, it's seen over two million views. The reason there have been two million views is not for those those few out there who have attacked me for asking the question. It is because most Americans look at that and they just say as a matter of common sense, that doesn't that's not right. And all those good Americans are also going to stand up for law and order. I think we'll have uh, or, or the result that we need to have, we need to, and, and we, we will stand for law and order and see to it that law and order prevails. That's exactly right. Another topic for you, Congressman, if I may. The House today passed a bill calling for the formation of a domestic terrorism office within the Department of Homeland Security. You voted against it, as did all but one Republican. What are your concerns about that bill? Joseph, they've begun using. You said it in your in your lead up. They they talk about everything being white supremacy. The idea of t- terrorism that the nation suffered grievously on nine eleven, and of course there is such a thing as domestic terrorism. Uh, we saw it in the bombing in Oklahoma City in nineteen ninety five, I believe it was. That, that's a serious issue, and we need to be united in dealing with it. But Democrats. Amazingly, in another maybe most significant institutional norm they've trampled, they've begun using domestic terrorism as a political smear against their political opposition, the entire Republican Party. It's an astonishing thing to behold. 
And it is the most irresponsible act I've ever seen in government. But I watched that bill come out in the Judiciary Committee. I've seen how they deal with it, the Democrats do. And and uh, there were many, many Republicans, actually, who voted against that bill on the floor. I'm grateful for that. But this is not something that we can play politics with. Terrorism, right. <laughs> it just, I mean, to say that almost is, if that's not self-evident to everybody, they need to get away from government and out of power. It is concerning that the idea of domestic terrorism would become, that terrorism in general would become a partisan issue because the implication there is that a significant percentage of Americans are terrorists. If there's anything we should be able to unite against and around is the idea that terrorism is something we reject, that we are not participating in. And I think you're right that a lot of us see the creep where this is becoming something This issue is being politicized rather than in good faith, bringing people together to make sure terrible things don't happen. On that point, 30 seconds of the disinformation board has been paused by the Biden administration. Do you think that's a good development? I think it is a telling admission, Joseph. It is an admission that they knew they were being destroyed in the court of public opinion because no such idea has ever been heard from. In, in, in the United States government, that they're going to regulate what people say. I mean, it's just, it's, it, in fact, I, it's hard to know what candidate it is that's the worst, uh, but that one is, is another good candidate. I'm glad they backed away from it. I think they are reeling political, politically. They, are in, they know they're badly damaged. It does seem they were that way, and they should be. Congressman Dan Bishop, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Joseph. Coming up, we're going to get a bit more into the pause of the Disinformation Governance Board. Stay with us. Join Family Research Council on an exciting two-year journey through the Bible. FRC's Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan helps you to dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into the cultural issues of the day. God has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. By studying the Bible, we can see God's plan unfold throughout the past and be encouraged by how the truth of Scripture is still relevant in our current day and will be into the future. The Stand on the Word reading plan engagingly and thoughtfully takes you through the daily scripture to help you stay grounded in God's truth. You can start this reading plan with Family Research Council today. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your family and friends. Visit frc.org Bible to begin this journey through the Bible today. Although most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, studies show that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. That is why Family Research Council's Center for Biblical Worldview was created. The center serves to help Christians understand the importance of Scripture, why it must be authoritative, and how it can equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC Center for Biblical Worldview provide resources to help prepare believers to give a scriptural answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access these free resources at frc.org worldview. See the center's latest blogs, op-eds, and publications by signing up for the newsletter at frc.org worldview email.
want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Again, search Stand Firm and download the app today. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home sitting in for Tony. Glad that you are with us. I want to remind you that you can find the show at TonyPerkins.com whenever it's convenient for you. The Biden administration created the Disinformation Governance Board, which drew immediate backlash and comparisons to the Ministry of Truth from George Orwell's book, 1984. Well, yesterday it announced it will pause the Disinformation Governance Board. Here's what White House spokeswoman Corrine Jean-Pierre had to say about it. The Department of, of Homeland Security, they began their statement report, re repeating that the board had been intentionally mischaracterized, which is a little bit of what you were asking me. And they were explicit about what it does and doesn't, it does not do. Joining me now to discuss all of it is Libby Emmons, who has been covering this story as editor-in-chief of The Post Millennial. Libby, good to have you. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. It's good to see you. You heard those comments there from Corrine. Do we still have you? There we go. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. No, no trouble at all. You heard those comments there from Corrine Jean-Pierre. Is the disinformation board the latest victim of disinformation? <laughs> I thought that was actually pretty hysterical. Peter Ducey asked that question in the press conference yesterday. Um, if the disinformation board had been a victim of disinformation itself. And I think to a certain extent, you know, they may believe that it has been. I think what really happened is that uh, people were pretty aware of what the disinformation board was about with a name like disinformation board. It's kind of hard to even get that wrong. It was pretty clear what the head of the disinformation board was about. She had spread disinformation herself. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, and to your point there, uh, it's curious, what did the Biden administration expect when you create a, a board, you call it the disinformation board? I assume somebody in the administration is aware of George Orwell, 1984, that people would very quickly make these connections. Did they really expect the American public to respond positively to this? I think that there's a good chance they expected the American public to not respond at all. But then again, it did take them six months of research to come up with the term ultra MAGA, which they then used to slam Trump supporters. So I'm not sure that their branding uh, arm of the Biden administration is really doing its job. I do think it's interesting that the disinformation governance board, as they called it, was initially created in the Department of Homeland Security in order to try and dispel misinformation and disinformation among migrants who may be illegally trying to cross the border before they got to the 
to the point where they were attempting to cross the border. However, the Biden administration themselves were the ones who were spreading that misinformation among migrants in the first place. So they had to create a board to tell migrants not to come across the border after telling migrants to definitely come across the border. Now, Nina Jankowicz seems to be a big part of this story. She was uh, she was being referred to as the truth czar. She was supposed <laughs> yeah. to head this board, right? She yeah. has recently resigned in all of this. And, and she was a highly controversial figure. We don't have time to get into everything that's on the Internet that she has done that is that's interesting. How much of this pause and in, in the early backlash was a response to her specifically or against the disinformation board, the idea of it generally? I, it's pretty interesting what you say. There's not enough time to get into all the things that she has said on the Internet. There have been so many things <laughs> that she has said on the Internet. Um, and, yeah, probably there's not time. But um, I think there was a big part of the reaction against this board was against Ms. Jankowitz herself, who had peddled the idea that Hunter Biden's laptop that was reported on by the New York Post was um, – Russian disinformation. She called it a fairy tale. It was actually uh, after she, it turned out that she had been named on this board, Jack Posobiec at Human Events had dug through all of her tweets and was just like, who is this person who is supposedly going to tell the world what disinformation is when she can't even figure that out herself? She had disinformation herself about COVID, Hunter Biden, elections. She claimed that there was, um, that censorship was not the opposite of free speech it was sort of shocking to see all of this. And I think there's also reaction against the Department of Homeland Security and the Biden administration in general for continuing to go after, uh, you know, the notion of domestic terrorism and all of this while continuously refusing to tackle the real issues that are confronting Americans today. Yeah. And, and I do wonder if this isn't going to be a repackaging, if they're not going to bring somebody <laughs> in who is more acceptable to the public, because... Yesterday, in her comments announcing the pause, Corinne Jean-Pierre, she did indicate that they were not done with the ultimate goal of this board. Let's play clip four. Yes, the board is, uh, is, is pausing in the sense that it will not convene while former Secretary Chertoff and former Deputy AG Gorlick uh, do their assessment. Uh, but the departments work across several administrations to address disinformation that threatens the security of our country is critical, and that will indeed continue. Libby, what is the work that will continue, do you think? I think they are going to continue to try and tell the American public what to think and what to think about. Um, they're going to continue to try and tell us that there's no problem at the border, that that's just disinformation. They're going to continue to tell us that there's no influence peddling going on in the Biden administration or with his son over all of these years. They're going to continue to tell us that that's some sort of fairy tale of disinformation. Um, I think that's really the goal here is to is for them to try and ensure that Americans are thinking what the Biden administration wants them to think. Um, and perhaps this pause is to try and get their messaging back on track. Maybe they'll bring in some TikTokers uh, who clearly have all the insights on Ukraine and border security. Um, perhaps they'll go after some other social media influencers and, and really nail down their message. One can only hope. <laughs> Now, Libby, the truth is everyone on both sides of the political aisle understand that disinformation does exist. There is bad information in the world. 
In your judgment, does the government have any role to play in determining what's good information and what's bad information? I think in this case, we have seen primarily this administration give us bad information over and over. It was shortly after President Biden was inaugurated that uh, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas came out during a press conference um, with Jen Psaki at the time and said, we're not telling immigrants not to come. We're telling them not to come now. And then it has been you know, months upon months of them trying to say that they are not encouraging migrants to come across the border, when in fact, interviews repeatedly with migrants who are, you know, dumping their passports because they're not refugees, they just want to come here, which, you know, God bless them. Um, we hear with inter in interviews with people, they're saying, well, Biden said we could come. Libby? We're coming because Biden said we could come. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but we greatly appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll do it again. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up next, a recent legal case requiring employers to pay for transgender surgeries. Good news. We'll talk about it when we come back. Most of us have at least one friend or family member who is pro-choice or have engaged with someone who doesn't share our pro-life views. As Christians, we are called to defend the weak and to speak truth in love. When we advocate for the unborn, we must do so in a way that is both honest and loving. At Family Research Council, we recognize the inherent dignity of every human life, from conception until natural death. The value of human life is not conditional upon its usefulness to others or an arbitrary evaluation of a person's quality of life. Rather, the value of human life is unconditional because God, the author of life, has created all humans in his image. FRC's Center for Human Dignity exists to give a voice to the voiceless by helping others speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Access our free resources at frc.org life so that you can address abortion, human trafficking, pornography, and more. Attention university students, do you feel called to promote faith, family, and freedom in public policy and the culture? Are you hoping to grow in Christian leadership? Then join Family Research Council for an unforgettable internship. FRC's 12 to 15 week internship program is designed to educate university students who are passionate about public service and who believe that a biblical worldview is necessary for government to serve the people and for culture to thrive. As an intern, you work alongside FRC's experts who will invest in your personal and professional development as you prepare to make a kingdom impact in the world. This paid internship offers free housing in D.C., allowing you to experience community with other faithful conservatives in the nation's capital. For more information and to apply, visit frc.org slash internships. That's frc.org slash internships. Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. The Biden administration created rules that forced religious employers and healthcare providers to pay for transgender medical procedures and counseling, even if it violated their beliefs. Well, this week, a federal district judge temporarily blocked that mandate. In his decision, District Court Judge Daniel Trainer stated, no government agency ought to be in the business of evaluating the sincerity of another's religious beliefs, end quote. 
The lawsuit was brought by the Christian Employers Alliance with the legal representation of our good friends at the Alliance Defending Freedom. And joining me now to discuss this is Jacob Reed, legal counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom. Jacob, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, Joseph. Appreciate you having me. It's great to see you. Tell us a bit more about the mandate that initiated, that caused this lawsuit to be necessary. Sure. So there's two mandates at issue here, one from the Department of Home, uh, Health and Human Services and one from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Uh, the, the latter forces Christian employers to provide coverage for transgender, so-called transgender uh, health services. And the HHS mandate forces Christian doctors and healthcare providers to actually perform these dangerous and controversial uh, so-called gender transition services. So, Jacob, do these mandates apply to everyone? We're, I know we're talking about some religious employers, but these mandates, as applied by the Biden administration, as they would like to apply them, cover all employers in the country? Uh, nearly all. That's correct. So anyone that is subject to Title VII, which is any employer with 15 or more employees. So that virtually covers, you know, any medium to large size business, uh, whether for profit or nonprofit. Now, unfortunately, we are not unfamiliar with mandates from the federal government. We went through a lot of this during the Obama administration. The Hobby Lobby case uh, was successful. It was one that a lot of people were encouraged by that said you can't force uh, Hobby Lobby to pay for abortifacients against their conscience. How is this case different than that one? Well, in, in many respects, it, it's not much different. It's uh, very similar there we were talking about abortifacients uh, and, you know, uh, birth control, et cetera. Here it's just uh, it's more expansive. So now we're forcing not only employers to provide coverage for these uh, controversial things, but to actually perform them, uh, such as Christian doctors and healthcare providers. Uh, but it's very similar to the Hobby Lobby case. We're raising the same religious concerns. Uh, and, you know, the Constitution protects rights of Christian employers and healthcare providers to adhere to their religious beliefs. So tell us about this decision from the judge today. It was good news. What was his reasoning here? So the judge reasoned that the federal government violated what's called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the constitutional principles under the First Amendment by forcing CEAs, employers, and healthcare providers to provide or perform these dangerous and controversial services. And he held that the government cannot impose its own orthodoxy on Christian providers and employers, and that they have a constitutional right to adhere to their own sincerely held Christian beliefs. But the case is not over. This is not a final ruling. Is that right? This is going to continue in court? That's correct. So this was a preliminary injunction. So the federal government is prohibited from enforcing its unlawful mandates against the members as the case progresses. Uh, you know, we're at the early stages, so we still have uh, lots to do, but it is a great decision and it protects CEA members as we continue to uh, go forward with this case. Now, Jacob, if this case is successful, if the Christian Employer Alliance wins on their arguments, will that apply to all employers around the country, just members of the Christian Employer Alliance? Who is this decision going to affect? So that's a great question. The current order we got just a few days ago 
protects CEA, CEA's current and future members. Uh, so it prohibits the government from enforcing the mandates against them. But as the case progresses, we have asked the court not only for that specific relief to protect CEA members, but we've also asked the court to uh, enjoin these mandates nationwide. So there's a possibility that it could make uh, render these mandates unconstitutional across the country. Uh, that is yet to be seen, and we will definitely urge the court for that uh, relief, and we'll see what the judge decides to do. Well, that's, it seems that the judge may have uh, created some incentives for people to join the Christian Employers Alliance because there does seem to be some legal benefits to doing so immediately and in the long term. But, Jacob, if they are not going, if they did not succeed in court, if the Biden uh, mandates did apply, what kind of penalties would be in effect for an employer who said, no, I can't do that? Sure. So there, there's multiple penalties. Uh with regards to the healthcare members, so talking about the HHS mandate, they could lose all federal funding, and that would be Medicaid and Medicare payments. And as you and the audience is probably very well aware, uh, that covers virtually all of the United States healthcare system. So that would devastate these Christian healthcare providers. And with regard to the employers, they could be subject to penalties, fines, private lawsuits, lawsuits brought by the federal government itself. Uh, which would be devastating and, you know, could have severe financial impacts on, on these employers. Which is why we are so thankful for you stepping up on behalf of the Christian Employer Alliance. And it, it seems like every week, and I know, in fact, earlier this week, we did talk to someone else at the Alliance Defending Freedom because of another critical case that you guys are advocating on the behalf of all Christians and really people of good faith and conscience and who love freedom. We're so grateful to you for doing it. And thanks for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Coming up, a common tactic we hear is from the left is to accuse everyone and everything we disagree about of being racist. How should we respond to that? That's a conversation we'll have coming up next. Religious liberty is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's own choosing and to live in accordance with those beliefs. It is an inherent human right. Therefore, Family Research Council's Center for Religious Liberty strives to advance religious liberty for all people of all faiths. Advocates for strong religious liberty protections are often labeled bigots. But for those familiar with the history of religious liberty in the United States, until recently, it was embraced by a majority of Americans. In fact, religious liberty has historically had bipartisan support. Today, efforts to restrict this freedom have become increasingly common. Therefore, Christians need to articulate with greater clarity why we support religious liberty and why all people are served when religious liberty thrives. Access the Center for Religious Liberty's free resources to learn more at frc.org slash religious liberty. In today's culture, there are few examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need a model of leadership, strength, courage, and sacrificial love that they can look to. But where can they find it? Try our Stand Courageous Men's Ministry. We seek to help men develop a strong, biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. 
We invite you to join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who struggle with the same issues you do and will invest in unpacking our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can have the generational influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. At Family Research Council, we want to be able to keep you informed on our latest resources and events. Due to the growing threat of tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've created a tech subscription platform so that we can stay connected. So if we get canceled, you can continue to receive updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. Thrilled that you are with us. A reminder that you can find this and every episode of Washington Watch at TonyPerkins.com and encourage you to do so on demand when it is convenient for you because we like to make it easy. Now, we are waiting for our next guest to show up. I teased, and we are going to get to a conversation about how much white supremacy really is influencing what is happening in the country today. Because there are so many accusations, whether it's the Buffalo shooting, which of course is a national tragedy, and we all mourn the fact that that happened, but less serious things and things that there could be reasonable points of disagreement, things like immigration policy, things like what's the best way to guarantee that we have fair and honest elections. Those are also labeled as being motivated by white supremacy. And we're going to get to that conversation in a moment. But before we do, we are going to give you an update on an important but under-the-radar nomination of a discussion and a debate and a confirmation that's happening here in Washington, D.C. And to do so, we're going to bring in Travis Weber, our vice president for government affairs. Travis. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Travis, Nancy Abudu is a name that uh, most Americans probably are not familiar with, but she's, an, she's a person uh, being debated right now in Washington, D.C. Who is she and why do we care? Yeah, so she's a nominee for the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. This is our nation's federal appellate court, or one, <clears throat> one circuit of the federal appeals court level. Uh, just, you know, one, one um, circuit of, among our federal appeals courts, we have the federal district courts, appeals courts, the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, you know, so she, she's one nominee, but the reason we're focused on her in particular is that she's connected with the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center. And she's uh, served as their strategic litigation director. She, um, you know, is entrenched in everything the SPLC stands for. And that's concerning uh, because the SPLC is not a credible civil rights organization. Yeah. 
they smear and slander their opponents, uh, list them as so-called hate groups, hate lists that are made up, um, fabricated descriptions of how they choose to classify their opponents. And so they're classifying not their opponents, not opponents of civil rights, but they're classifying their own political opponents. So this is why we have to look at a nominee who's connected to this organization yeah. serving as her strategic litigation Travis? director. Yeah. Give us a bit on the, the timeline of her nomination. When is this going to happen if it does happen? Yeah. So she's been nominated. She's been uh, considered before the Senate. And, um, you know, we, we are expecting we're expecting a vote in the Senate Judiciary Committee any day. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we're we're looking at a situation where she could be advancing out of committee to the Senate floor for a confirmation vote. Uh, but but you know, she really shouldn't, because one of the things that has been that has come to light recently is, is the, the fact that the SPLC is under investigation right. for possibly shopping for the right judge in Alabama in their their activist attempt to block a bill that protects minors mm -hmm. from uh, gender transition procedures, harmful uh, hormones and surgeries being applied to kids right. who want to. You know, try to live as, with the opposite biological sex. So this is a problem. We need to look at this situation when we look at the Abudu nomination. And Travis, I think this is yet another example of truly how far to the left this administration is. We talked earlier in the program about the the, the House Judiciary Committee hearing yesterday where they said essentially, uh, yes, men can get pregnant and have, uh, have abortions, where they said that... Uh, there's no there. You should be able to kill a child, not right after birth, but eight inches prior uh, that it's OK to do that. It's a choice. These really incoherent positions. And then we see in this case, the Biden administration really reaching into one of the most extreme organizations that exists in America when it comes to its relationship with the American people and its detachment from middle America and plucking those people out and trying to put them on the federal bench. It is concerning. It's why elections matter and certainly why judges matter. But Travis, thank you so much for your time today and give us an update on this important issue. Thank you. Next, last Saturday, the nation witnessed a tragedy when a young shooter fueled by racism and hate callously opened fire in a Buffalo supermarket, murdering 10 and injuring three more. Well, as often happens after a tragedy, some rush to seize a political opportunity. And many on the left took the opportunity to accuse those on the right of white supremacy that fueled the tragic event. Is that true? Are there things you and I could have done differently to prevent this from happening? Is white supremacy really everywhere? Joining me now to talk about this and more is Virgil Walker. He's the executive director of operations for G3 Ministries. He's also the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Just Thinking. Virgil, thanks for joining us today. I'm glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you. Now, I want to set this conversation up a bit with a couple quotes in response to the events of this week. Now, Representative Kath, Catherine Clark from Massachusetts, she said, referring to a conversation about replacement theory, which I want to get into, she told reporters at the Capitol, it is anti-Semitic, it is racist, it is very destructive, and it is a pillar of the current GOP. Echoing similar sentiments, here's what President Biden had to say this week in Buffalo, New York. White supremacy is a poison. It's a poison running through. It really is. 
running through our body politic, and it's been allowed to fester and grow right in front of our eyes. Now, Virgil Walker, there's no disagreement that white supremacy is a poison. The question I want to ask you, has it been allowed to fester and grow right in front of our eyes? Yeah, I, 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 I have to disagree with the president with the sentiment. Uh, the sentiment that he is trying to express is, is the idea that it's a part of our body politic. That, that's where we go, go off the rails. First of all, uh, white supremacy of, of the top 10 things uh, that are facing black communities, uh, white supremacy isn't even on the radar screen. Uh, I could walk you through what those issues are. That's not what you called me to, to, to comment on today. But at the end of the day, what we've got to realize is this is this is the, the, the equivalent of just of, of reshaping history. This is you talk about replacement theory. This is revisionist history is what the Democratic Party is engaged in currently. This is the same Democratic Party that advocated for things like slavery, that advocated for things like Jim Crow, that advocated uh, for things like black codes, uh, segregation and the like. This is the same Democratic Party. Uh, in fact, Joe Biden had had as, as, as one of the senators that he was involved with there uh, in 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 Congress, uh, a segregationist himself. I mean, we could go on and on and, and, and as it relates to uh, unpacking what party has has more uh, blood on its hands, if you will, with regard to the issue of, of white supremacy and its impact on culture. I, I'll, I'll advance the, the, the idea by even adding this. When you look at predominantly black uh, communities, uh, and and they and and the fact that they've been overrun or run for decades by Democrats and the Democratic Party, uh, they've done more damage to black communities. Add to that, just you know, two summers ago, Black Lives Matter and their advocacy for defunding the police that has had more problematic impact on black communities more than anything else. So again, that that's one side of the coin. Let me let me let me address the other side of the issue. Uh, first, we've got the historic revisionism. On the other side of that coin, what we're looking at is the fact that none of these people actually are concerned or expressing concern uh, about the victims uh, of that Buffalo massacre. Uh, all of us can agree in, in, our, in our hatred uh, with anything white supremacist, with anything that, 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 that diminishes the Imago Dei, that says that all of us are, are not created equal, are, are not created as image bearers of a living God. Yeah. Uh, all of the politics that we see that is, that is being posited by the left uh, have, a, have a tendency to disregard the fact that we are one and the same yeah. and segment us into communities, uh, pitting us against one another. So it shouldn't be surprising when we see this kind of behavior uh, that we witness uh, out, of, out of the shooter. Uh, we should be surprised that more events like these don't happen when we, in light of what we see happening in our political realm around the rhetoric that pertains to blackness and whiteness and how whiteness is sinful. Again, I, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination uh, advocating that what the shooter did was, was just or right or good. We condemn all of those actions. But to use what took place on that day for the purpose of, of your own political advantage is absolutely despicable. And, and I'd say downright evil at the end of the day. Now, Virgil, one of the challenging things about uh, this conversation about race is the fact that racism does exist. And nobody's denying that. It's, it's an evil that has always existed. And, and our theology will tell us it's not going to go away until sin is gone. It's a problem. It's maybe not the primary problem, but it's a real problem. And, and so because of that, when we hear these allegations about white supremacy, and they come from a lot of places, 
and, and from the left to the right in particular, and that's kind of the context we're talking about right now, if we disagree with their immigration policy, that's because you're a white supremacist. Right. If you want to make it harder to cheat in elections, well, that's because you're a white supremacist and you don't want people who are brown to vote. And even right. recently in the last couple of weeks, I've read articles about how the move toward homeschooling is fueled by white supremacy. Right. Where's the middle ground between understanding the fact that, well, racism is an actual problem, but not Everything that people do is racially motivated. What they've done by the language that they've used is they've actually diminished real racism. They've actually diminished situations and circumstances that take place that people can all equally look at and point to and identify as racist, right? Uh, uh, Daryl Harrison and I from the Just Thinking podcast, we, we don't even like the term racism. We prefer to use the term ethnic hatred. Why? Because biblically speaking, we're dealing with ethnicities and at the root of any kind of ism, especially as it pertains to racism, is actual hatred of our brother. So if we're going to stay within the biblical framework, we've got to identify the fact that what we're talking about is ethnic Hatred And what do we do when someone hates someone? Well, in, 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 in the world that I live in, we share within the gospel uh, because we know that that is the only unifier that really transforms parts and minds. I understand legislation. It's important. It's important to have barriers. But at the end of the day, it's the church's responsibility to proclaim the message of the gospel in an effort to see heart transformation so that we can actually see lives change from, from darkness to light. But what we're seeing currently in the political spectrum is absolutely beyond the pale. But this is not new. Uh, every year, every every election cycle, what we witness is over and over and over again. From, from whether it's, whether it's George Floyd or or the or the election that's about to take place. When when the, if you remember, just just uh, eighteen months ago, the whole conversation was all about reparations. So it's it's as if the party that 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 desires to to gain power or obtain power, particularly from the left, every news cycle they identify one thing that they can can stir up and spin up to attach to the emotion of their black democratic base and an effort to charge them to get out and vote. And that's what they're doing currently. And it is absolutely evil. Virgil, I want to get into replacement theory in a moment. Before I get there, I just want to get your advice on something because there's a lot of people, um, white conservative Christian evangelicals are, are demeaned in many ways. And, and that's a, that's a demographic of which I, of course, fit that it's okay to say terrible things about them publicly and, and it's fine. Um, that's acceptable right now. And I'm not saying that defensively. That's just the reality of it. But what would you say? What's your advice as somebody who's not a white evangelical Christian, a Christian to be sure? But what's your advice? How should people respond to these allegations? Usually not made in good faith, but maybe sometimes they are when somebody says, actually, you're just motivated by racism. Yeah, well, well, the, the, the idea that's out there currently um, is, is, is the theory of, of just around silence, right? It's, it's what's called the color of voice theory. And, and, what, and that's really what you're speaking to. It's the idea that if you, it, that voices of color matter. That's kind of the language that you're hearing right now in culture. So if you're white, then you need to be quiet, shut up and sit down uh, and, and take note from someone who is 
black who has more knowledge and experience than you do on these issues, and they're the voices that actually matter. The reality is, again, as a as a quote unquote white evangelical, uh, an evangelical who happens to be white, I'll even say it this way: a believer in Christ. You need to recognize, know, and understand that if you're in Christ, we are one, brother. We, you, and I are more connected as fellow believers in Christ than the color of our skin. Right. We we have a connection that is that is that supersedes that 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 is actually eternal because of the fact that we're connected as one body in Christ Jesus. And so for any white evangelical, it's the idea of standing on that truth and not being persuaded or moved off course by the rhetoric that we hear in culture. That's one of the most important things that we've got to do. Is there a solution to this problem, Virgil? We've got about a minute left, so do it quickly. But how do you see us, the church being part of the solution? And the church being part of the, the solution is standing on the truth, believing the word of God, and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what matters. That is what matter and matters, and you have helped us do this. And, and we haven't even gotten to replacement theory, which I wanted to. You have, uh, to, have, me you have to have me back. You I, have to have me back. We do have to have you back because there's so much good stuff to get into here. And and again, I just want to say to you and and your friend uh, Daryl Harrison, the co-host of Just Thinking, I just want to commend to our audience the thinking that you do and the service that your podcast just thinking is to all of us. It's a great resource to help people think deeply and rightly about a lot of these difficult topics. You're a great treasure to our country and to the church. We thank you for doing it. And we uh, thank you for being with us today. We do have to do it again. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. And again, encourage you to go check that out wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It's called Just Thinking. As you can see, these are not simple issues, but they are real issues. And it comes from, and the point that I want to leave us with here tonight is the gospel is unifying. Rooting our identity in our skin color is inherently divisive because it says the most important things about me make me different from other people. In the gospel, the most important things about us are things that we all have in common, which is why it brings us together. That's all we have for today, folks. We'll see you tomorrow on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God and nothing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.